The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Widely acknowledged as one of Australia's foremost educators and practitioners in the field of child sexual abuse and child abuse prevention, Karen leads Save the Children Australia's child protection work and is a qualified social worker with over 35 years clinical, managerial, training and research experience in national and international child protection. She has designed award-winning and impactful programs that have reduced violence against children and contributed to positive change in the lives of children all over the world. In 2010, she was appointed a member of the Order of Australia for service to community in the area of child protection through contributions to policy and program development and legislative reform. Not only that, but Karen is my very dear friend, mentor and colleague, and I'm so pleased that she's agreed to be my very first guest on the Do Gooder podcast. So welcome, Karen. Thank you very much for that generous introduction, Leah. It's a pleasure. Very happy to have you here. First of all, before we get down to the nitty gritty of things, can you tell me about your work? What, what does an average work week look like for you? Oh, wow. I think the reason I've um, been able to last 35 years in child protection and everything that goes with that is that there's never a second that's the same. There's never a day that's the same. Dynamic, high-paced and exciting, I suppose, even though there's a lot to do. But it depends. One minute I could be talking to the government about trying to get more funding for child protection in the Pacific. The next minute I'm planning a workshop for uh, people who work on the Thai-Burmese border to strengthen their child safeguarding and child protection policies. And then I'll be booking a flight or I've forgotten that I haven't got a hotel for next week. So it's minute by minute. Mm, yep, that's familiar to me too. So you work in what we would call a helping profession. What does doing good mean to you? It's funny when you say doing good, I, I think, oh, no, I don't want to be seen as a do-gooder. I think part of my legacy, and this is partly to do with the fact that I am a social worker, and I know now social work is regarded as um, a respectful profession, think back to when well you're too youngly <laughs> when I started it was a bit of a, a do-gooder thing it was almost like we were glorified volunteers so I kind of grimace a bit when you say do good however I'm happy to say that social work is now seen as a reputable and very sought after profession and I think because people recognize the impacts um of violence and interpersonal problems on people's lives and that social workers are the best equipped people to 
intervene, not just intervene, hopefully prevent in the first place, but a whole range of um, responses and interventions can be done through the social work mechanism. But the doing good, it seems very personal and it almost seems like a vocation. I hope that my doing good is highly professional and based on experience, knowledge and learning. Thanks for that. I'm so glad you brought up the discomfort around this idea of being a do-gooder or doing good. And that's exactly why this podcast is is called that, because those two words do bring up a discomfort because there were negative connotations in the past. And, and I think there still are. And you're right. I think, you know, in the early days, these helping professions really were, as you said, about kind of glorified volunteering. And I think the dynamic has shifted, the context has shifted, but but there's still a discomfort there. Absolutely. I'll give you a good case example. So last week I was in Jakarta, Indonesia, and through my work in the Families First program, which is all about strengthening the child protection workforce in that country, because in the past, social workers were trained to work in institutions slash orphanages because poor children were put in these institutions. It was government policy. They supported that because they thought that's how you help vulnerable children. As a result, social workers were trained to go and work in institutions. And when we started working with the Indonesian government around the need for a policy paradigm shift away from doing um you know taking children away from their families and putting them in institutions we're saying no you need to strengthen the family's capacity to look after their own children and if there's a lack of access to education or social protection fix that do not take children away from families so they agreed to that and eventually over the last 12 years we've made huge gains and the Indonesian government is to be commended for their work in this area but the flip side of that was the workforce wasn't ready so that we had all these social workers who didn't know how to go and knock on the door of a family to talk about very personal issues, not to mention if you're a young woman in the Muslim context, for example, talking to a man about violent behaviour, they did not have those skills. So we set about rewriting the academic curricula in Indonesia And last week, that all culminated. They've now passed a new law that social work is seen as a profession akin to doctors and psychiatrists. So this has really lifted our profession up away from that social work, do good, you're just going to work with children in orphanages and institutions, to know you need really a big skill set to work with families to help them be the best they can be to protect and nurture their own children. And at the same time, influencing policy and mobilizing resources to do that. And social work was key in all of that. You know, the the acknowledgement we've now got in that country is fabulous. It's given us a real lift as a profession. Yeah, that's incredible. And what an incredible impact on the child protection sector in that country as well to to professionalise social workers. Yes, and that's our staff in country believing in their profession as social workers. They're all social workers themselves. And there were key people in ministry who who had social work backgrounds, but they hadn't been able to utilise their proper skill set. So yes, it's been really great to see something like that happening in a country that I happen to be lucky enough to be working in. 
I know that you grew up in Northern Ireland during quite a tumultuous time. How do you think that that experience has impacted your life and your career trajectory? I think it's got everything to do with why I do what I do in many ways. The older I get, the more I realize this. Growing up, I think having done a lot of um, training and mentoring of other social workers and child protection people, I always realize everything comes down to motivation. And I look at the people who've lasted the distance, say, in child protection work, for example, and think, it's almost an innate motivation. Now, that can be cultured, fostered, or knocked out of you. That's a bad analogy, but due to your experiences. And I think definitely growing up in the middle of a civil conflict had a lot to do with my understanding of the lack of equity, lack of equality, and basically discrimination of Catholics and lack of access to public housing civil rights, human rights. So my family were activists. So from I was a child, we were protesting in the civil rights movement. I didn't know what that was. I was five, six and seven, but I knew it was something important. And then as I grew up, I would say to my dad, what's this banner actually mean? What what does that say? So that was probably the beginnings of my activism (laughs) and advocacy interest. My mother then eventually became a social worker, but she was clearly a community do-gooder for all the right reasons. And of course, we were doing good whether we liked it or not, because she was taking our clothes, our toys and things. I would see people up the town wearing my shoes and my jackets and say, Mom, why did you give my army jacket away? And she'd go, you don't need it. You've got plenty of clothes. Those children need them. Whether we wanted it or not, we were groomed into it, I suppose. And of course, we were Catholic, so there was the Christian side of it. And I was the eldest child in a family. And I also think if you look at social workers, I always say, are you the eldest child in your family by any chance? Or did you come from a family where there was, you know, a strong religious or social justice bent? And usually people will say, well, they fit into some of that category. So I had no hope of not doing what I was doing, I think. But the experience of growing up in Northern Ireland resonates with me more and more the older I get in terms of the influence it's had on my need to advocate for children's rights. Absolutely. And and I know you've personally shared with me stories about what it was like working in child protection in your very early years. Do you want to say a little bit more about that versus what it's like working in child protection now? Well, I I think that's the other reason. I, I literally had a baptism by fire and was exposed to bombs, bullets, cut, caught and crossfire. My car was hijacked more times than I care to think about. And that was all in my first year of social work, not to mention my experiences as a student social worker on the Falls Road and Shankill Road in the height of the troubles. So there I am, a young Catholic woman with a name like Karen Flanagan. So my name tells you exactly what side I'm on, whether I believe in anything or not. And that then evokes a response for better or for worse, in the person who meets me. I was introduced to the IRA. I didn't even realise it was the IRA. My supervisor on my first placement said, we've just got to go and meet some people in the community centre, Karen, before you start your placement. Um, so we walk into this community centre up in, um, off the Falls Road in Belfast 
it was a big long hall and it was dark and I said why have I got the lights on and she said oh you'll see why she didn't even tell me I think she thought it was better not to tell me so we walk into this dark hall we're walking down and all you can hear is the footsteps and it's really eerie and then eventually as we approach there's a table with four men with balaclavas sitting at it and I'm thinking oh my god and my supervisor, Frances, said, okay, this is Karen Flanagan. She's going to be a student social worker on the Falls Road from this date to this date. Please allow her free access and entry to the estates because she's conducting work for social services. So I signed something and off we went and had a coffee. And I thought, wow. So that was the start. <laughs> but that meant I was protected then because if I had gone in unannounced, they might have thought I was an undercover British army person even though my accent's clearly Irish but you know I could have been a spy and informer god knows what so that was for my protection that gives you a sample of the way we operated in Belfast back then and you know the social workers used to wear hard hats going into the Divis flats at the bottom of the Falls Road because people would just pelt them with things later on in plastic bullets but yeah social workers wore hard hats to do their jobs <laughs> That's incredible. And and so you left Northern Ireland and came to Australia. And did you go straight into social work here? Yes, of course. Uh, my first job was at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. I was so excited to get a job because in Northern Ireland, it was really hard to get work. And even though we, you know, I spent five years at university qualifying this wasn't enough jobs and the reason for me coming to Australia was not because I was wanting to pursue my career it was a love story I had no intention of even coming to Australia but I'm so glad I did but to get a job in a hospital hospital social work was seen as the ultimate you'd really really made it when you got a job as a hospital social worker so there was a pecking order even in social work as to what the prestigious jobs were versus the non. And everybody thought I was a freak because I really, really was clear I wanted to do child protection, whereas everybody I knew was trying to avoid child protection. (laughs) So I got a job in the child protection unit um, at the Royal Children's Hospital, and I was also their emergency social worker. So I was right at the cut and thrust of everything where I think I'm you know, clearly well suited because I've lasted the distance. But I always wanted to be in the the highest risk, edgiest, most dynamic area. And people used to think I was mad. But yeah, that was my first job here. And I spent four years and it was a brilliant induction, let me tell you, to life in Victoria, Melbourne. But also it gave me a bit of a perspective on our region because the Royal Children's Hospital obviously treated children from the Pacific and other countries. I wouldn't have got that experience had I just gone straight into child protection, say DHS or CSV as it was at the time. So it was a great overarching way for me to understand the systems and what was going on in in Victoria and then nationally. And so you and I met uh, working at a place called Childwise, which was based in Melbourne, a small NGO. And before that, you had done some pretty pioneering work in the field of child sexual abuse, specifically working with offenders directly. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, of course. I was very lucky that I was offered to go to work at the Children's Protection Society. That was after I I did my brief stint in DHS, the Statutory Child Protection Training and Policy Unit, where I really wanted to influence child protection practice on how they responded 
to cases of child sexual abuse, understanding the dynamics of sex offenders because the system and the court processes were not factoring in how sex offenders operated. So I was very lucky I was given um, an opportunity to do that, but I didn't want to stay there because, again, as an advocate, you can't speak out too much when you work for government. The very first thing I did when I worked at the Royal Children's Hospital was get myself involved in advocacy. So right from the second I entered the country, I was seeing what I could be doing, even though who was I to know anything, but I got myself involved with the right people. And we formed VicSpan, which was a lobby group at the time to lobby for major instrumental changes to the child protection system at the time. So right from the word go in Australia, I was looking for opportunities to do that. The work at the Children's Protection Society, I had realised that through my work at the Royal Children's Hospital, counselling many thousands of children who'd been sexually abused, I said, the services cannot keep up with the demand for victims of sexual abuse. What are we doing to prevent it? What are we doing to work with those who are actually causing the problem? And of course, through my work with children, I could see that there were many children, mostly boys, who were starting to engage in sexually abusive behaviours, but people just assumed they're victims of sexual abuse. But in further investigation, it turned out, no, they weren't. And there were other things going on. So I became very interested in that and started reading. There wasn't a lot to read. We certainly didn't have internet back then. So I wrote to people who authored the main texts that I was reading, Gail Ryan in America, for example, And she wrote back to me and I said, look, I'm really interested in pursuing this work with children and young people with sexually abusive behaviours, but everybody here wants to treat them either as an adult offender. And she said, yes, that's going to be your biggest challenge. I was lucky to get a travel grant from the department and go to America and do her six day course, which was the only professional education on working with young people with sexually abusive behaviours. So as a result of that, I came back and got the opportunity through the Children's Protection Society to set up a service. It was primarily targeted towards victims, but I said I would only do it if we could work with kids engaging these behaviours. And thankfully, Michael Tizard, the then CEO, was a he was a dynamic child protection practitioner by trade, but a great CEO who wanted to do something new and innovative. So he backed me. We had no money, but we just started, got money from the ANZ and a few trusts and off we went. And then developed this integrated program working with victims and young perpetrators and people said you can't be doing that you can't have you know perpetrators in the same building as a victim and I'm going well hang on they're actually brothers and sisters from the same family mostly so let's think about them as children first in need of protection and we used that work and we evaluated it based on our work with 420 young perpetrators to argue for more funding and we used to get I mean I had ministers come out and talk to the children and young people I had treasury officials come out and they saw the work that we were doing and we could actually prove that it stopped the sexually abusive behaviors so the whole point was get in early and the ages of between the ages of 10 and 14 don't treat them as perpetrators treat them as people in need of protection And we got the first ever therapeutic treatment orders for young people with sexually abusive behaviours in Australia. And in fact, one of the few places, if not the only in the world, to do that. So that was quite pioneering work and um, a great time in my professional career. Incredible. And it's one of the reasons why I have so much admiration and respect for the work that you do and you continue to do. I guess you've been in the do good sector for a long time now. 
you've obviously seen a lot over the years and, and you've met a lot of people that are also thinking and trying to do good and be good. Can you tell me about some of the ways in which you've seen doing good go wrong? Child protection work is a classic example. A lot of people come in wanting to do good, wanting to protect children. And this is where motivation is key. The bit that I left out when I spoke earlier about my motivation, which was very much determined by the family that I came from, the context I grew up in. But for a large part of our sector, whether you're a social worker or a psychologist or a nurse or, you know, in the doing good human services, but particularly in social work, there's a huge percentage of people who are motivated based on experiences that they've had themselves, lived experiences. So, for example, in child protection, it may be about their own abuse experiences. Now, that's fine, absolutely, because the world is made up of people who have had lots of experiences. The key is, though, how you've dealt with it and how you've responded to it. And I have seen in my role as a trainer and a mentor and a supervisor of many, many staff where that can be used to do a lot of good um, because that insight informs practice. But I've also seen it cause issues of parallel processes, counter transference, bringing your own issues to the family that you're working with or inadvertently meddling. And that's a, a strong word, but because you've had your own experience of the issue, your client's experiencing, you know best and you're going to deal with it. Or you're doing this work to avoid your own issues and you haven't resolved them. So there's a fine line between doing good or thinking you're doing good. The key is understanding it understand what you get out of it because let's face it you can't do 35 years of child protection if you haven't got something out of it and I get something out of it every day so I think do I take more than I give but as a professional there's that boundary that needs to be really really carefully monitored and that's why I love social work because we've got very clear standards and guidance and expectations around that but I have seen people step over the line and give either mixed messages to their clients or their clients think they're their friend and then when they say sorry I'm actually about to remove your child or I'm going to take you to court now people are very confused that's a classic example of doing good going wrong by misguided intentions or lack of supervision and good processes and accountability. Absolutely. And I want to pick up on this thread of an idea that you might get something out of doing good. You know, there's there's an understanding or a misconception in the world that doing good should be altruistic. You shouldn't get much out of it. But I want to I want to explore that in a bit more depth with you. What do you get out of it? Satisfaction, self-worth, my identity, Obviously, people give you feedback and, you know, when you go to a barbecue or a party, people go, oh, wow, that's amazing. (laughs) And even though you cringe, yeah, it feels good. It feels good. I think how lucky am I? I jump out of bed every morning, even if I feel lousy or I'm jet lagged and I've just come. I still want to get to work to get on with it. So maybe I'm, you know, a narcissist. I don't know. (laughs) And I'm also a good martyr, Lee. I'm a very good martyr because nobody can do it like me. No one. Who knows? I don't know. But I would like to think my professionalism kicks in and I would rather be seen as a professional. We've come away from the volunteer do goody thing and we are 
people who are advocating for serious things to hopefully do better for children. So rather than being a do-gooder, I'd like to be a (laughs) do-betterer. I don't know. Exactly. And that's the whole purpose of, of what I'm trying to unpack here is how do we do good better? Because that leads into my next question for you. Are good intentions enough in doing good? No, absolutely not. Otherwise, there'd be no problems in the world because most people do want to do good. Most people have good intentions, but without either the intellectual, emotional and moral cognitive understandings of their impact on others and their motivation and rationale for doing so or the sustainability of their great idea then things can go wrong and that's why I'm so happy that social work is more and more being recognized as a really necessary profession because sure 99% of people I think because again I am the naive optimist right 99% of people have good intentions Let's say that, but how many of them are quit into ongoing, sustainable, effective solutions for the idea, people, group that they want to inflict their good idea on? So I think that's the difference between the volunteer and the professional, the do-gooder and the do-betterer. There are lines and frameworks to guide us. A good intention is a great place to start, but you need the rigor And of course, for those of us in the social work profession, we now realize we need evidence to say that what we do works. Different to medicine, different to education, you can quantify your effect and impact much better than you can quantify your impact on interpersonal dynamics and change behavior, much more complex based. But we're understanding that more. So that's why I think we're on a great trajectory as a profession, social workers. And I think it hopefully will not be too long before we're not described as the volunteer do-good or passionate people, but people who are a force to be reckoned with, who are making sustainable change for good in the world. Absolutely. And, and you make a good point in saying that the social work profession has checks, balances, systems in place, evidence in place to support the good intention and to to make it a reality. Yet there are a lot of other helping professions or helping sectors, doing good sectors, that don't have that in place. And that's where we start to see some of these negative outcomes, some of these lines blurred between personal and professional identity and practice. What are your thoughts on on that space? And I know through working with you and particularly working on the orphanages issue that we work on, you know, we see it a lot in the international development sector. And I know you have a lot to do with that sector through your work. So what have you seen in that space? Yes, Obviously, the orphanage issue is one of many, but it's the one that you and I have done a lot together on, and it directly relates to my work at Save the Children in regard to child protection system strengthening, family strengthening, and trying to do anything to reduce the separation of children from families and to promote family strength so they work together well as families and they're well resourced to keep their children with them so the orphanages is one definite (laughs) obvious place to look to 
the fact that people want to go on a holiday, great, but then they now feel they need to do good while they're there. That's a bit of a new phenomenon and it's well documented through our Rethink Orphanages work and our upcoming book, which we may as well plug now, Modern Slavery, which will be due out in November. (laughs) Please buy it. (laughs) So through our work in Rethink Orphanages, we've brought the spotlight acutely on on this notion of is it not enough to go on a holiday and spend money in the local economy fuel that drive jobs for the locals so they can have the dignity of earning their own income and providing for their own families and protecting their own children without us all coming on a holiday and being voyeurs and orphanage tourists why is that now becoming the norm with young people and adults. Although interestingly, I think we're getting a lot more traction with young people than maybe some of the older adults who maybe have more invested in this than say young people who just want a one-off experience. So I think the orphanage tourism is a classic example of good intentions going wrong. But I think the optimistic side of me says, when we have these conversations, We've not had too many people, unless they're running a business and they are seriously gaining financial reward from it. Most people who are doing it, when you point it out to them, actually didn't realize and they they want to reevaluate. Well, that's my experience. Lee, you may have different experiences. But my experience is once you explain to people what that's actually doing to children, they go, oh, my God, we had no idea. Please, well, well, how can we help then? So they still want to help. They still want to do good. But we just need to give them steer them in a more disciplined you know way and inform them about the sustainability of their ideas or if you just simply want to give money give money but give it to reputable organizations who know where to use it and how to use it and how to be accountable for that it seems that something's missing on the checks and balances side it seems that that you can just go off and do these things and there's no accountability to anyone else. Whereas in social work, it seems that you're saying there is. What do you think about that? So that's why we're doing so much work on trying to draw attention to the lack of accountability and the lack of standards through our Rethink Orphanages work. And we are working with key bodies such as the Australian Charities Commission to try and point out to them that, you know, when people register charities, orphanages, how are we monitoring how the money from Australia is being used and what impact that has on children? And if it's an orphanage situation, the obvious negative impact. I think we are trying to do that in the orphanage industry, for example, uh, the travel education sector, we are doing all the awareness raising, but the internalised checks and balances aren't there. It reminds me a bit of years ago when we worked at Childwise and how Childwise was way ahead of its time when you think about it, when we lobbied Aussie and now DFAT, when we lobbied them to say, you're giving all this money to lots of people, including charities such as Save Children World Vision, lots of managing contractors, but you actually don't know if that money's doing any harm to children, which is why we were the first home donor to develop a child protection policy, which we would now refer to as a child safeguarding policy. But basically that was so Australia, the Australian government could say, okay, we're going to give you our money, but you need to abide by these very clear standards, this policy and this code of conduct, and this is what we expect you to do. I mean, we were involved in that and that was a great piece of work to do. So we are influencing in different ways the need to 
understand that when aid money's going in, whether it's government money, corporate money, charity money, whosever money it is that's going into something, there needs to be clear accountability mechanisms in place. So I think we're 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 getting better. We've got you know we've still got a long way to go in the orphanage work because again we're dealing in very um, underdeveloped countries with ministries and governments who haven't got the technical expertise or the resources or sometimes quite frankly the intention to change this. So we're 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 doing good work in Indonesia, Cambodia, Thailand, Myanmar. You know we're trying really hard to get ahead of this, but. Um, we're at the mercy of the governments in country and their intentions and their motivation to change and to allocate resources accordingly. Which brings me back to what you've learned over your career and what kind of advice would you have for someone that's just starting out as a social worker that's interested in working in child protection in the international context, what advice would you have for them about their own motivations and and their own career choice? There wouldn't be a week goes by that I don't end up talking to someone who asks, who wants to get in to do what I do, for example, or they're at a career crossroads and they want to do more good. In fact, I had a conversation with a a young woman who's left um, a very high, you know, big brand company who basically is disillusioned and wants to do more good. So I was giving her some advice yesterday. The advice for me is, I always say firstly, well, what do you see yourself doing in five years' time? You know, if you if you thought, I'll be really happy if I've achieved this, what would that look like, etc. But I think it's understanding their own motivation and why it is they want to change or why they want to pursue this helping goal they want to change things for children, for example. I want to change things for children. Uh, should I do law? Should I do social work? Should I do international development? You know, there's many issues. Should I do psychology? And that's why I asked that question. What What would you see yourself doing in five years? And sometimes it might be that they do want to influence policy. And sometimes it's, no, I want to work directly with children or I want to represent children because they're underrepresented and they can't get their cases through to get prosecutions against their perpetrator, for example. So depending on what people say, I would, you know, steer them in a... But I end up inadvertently, and this is my very conscious bias, I wouldn't even say it's unconscious, it's totally conscious. I often steer people to social work because they say they want to do a bit of everything. And that's effectively what I've ended up doing I've been an advocate, I've influenced and been successful in getting new laws and policies in place. I've worked directly with the most marginalised, with most vulnerable children in the UK and Australia and now the Southeast Asia Pacific region. I'm working with governments in different countries to influence budget allocations, to influence policy. And every day I get to talk to staff who are on the ground working in the field and I get to go to the field I think that social work is the way I steer people, but that is, as I said, my conscious bias, because if you really want to be a do-gooder, do it professionally. Absolutely, absolutely. And what would you say to your 21-year-old self? (laughs) Slow down, slow down. You have to last the distance, but I think I haven't. And I'm, you know, I'm 59 and I don't feel any differently than I did when I was 21. I still have that eagerness and that, excitement and that drive I had my 
individual development plan meeting with my boss the other day and basically said you know I've been in the organization 10 years do you think I'm a dinosaur do you you know if you need me to go tell me now so I can go gracefully (laughs) but I have no intention of going unless you push me out the door so let's talk about that but I was assured that I was still relevant and I still had a contribution to make which is very reassuring I, of course, feel that, but you need to test that with others because when you love what you do so much, sometimes you can't see really around you because I'm so, you know, focused on the end goal. Um, The belief that we can end violence against children and we absolutely must never waste a day and not doing that. So I believe every day, hopefully I've contributed something to that. But yes, some days I think, oh my God, what did I do today? And then other days, like yesterday, I feel I really earned my money today. I really earned my money. <laughs> so my my 21 year old self, I don't feel any different, to be honest. Maybe I haven't wised up yet. So on that, how have you kept yourself able to keep doing this how have you maintained this energy that you have I think it's a combination of natural personality traits and if you look at my family if you met my mother who's 80 who drives me nuts but she definitely has been a significant role model in my life obviously because she's a very strong determined woman and she happens to be a social worker as well and all the females and on my maternal side from from myself, my sister, cousins, have all ended up doing social work in child protection. Several of us working with the hardest clients, for example, adult sex offenders. My cousin in Glasgow's working with some of the people who've murdered. And I said, what is this in our family? What are we doing? My father was a surveyor, I might add. So that was obviously where the balance came from. But clearly, I wasn't ever going to go that way. But I think the most important thing, and I don't think I've said enough about this, is the importance of supervision, mentoring and support professionally. Personally, I'm very gifted and lucky. I've got an awesome family. I've got an amazing support family friendship group and peers and colleagues like yourself, Lee. We chew the fat together. We go through the frustrations together. But having a supervisor who guided me very early on in my career having good supervisors and good mentors people like Tony Morrison who unfortunately died 10 years ago but he still psychologically is my mentor and I have a few other people that um, guide me and support me and I have a very supportive boss at Save the Children now currently so they're the things that keep me grounded so when I'm out of control which can happen quite often I have people who are not afraid to say Karen slow down focus breathe, stop. That's really critically important. So that element of professional supervision and support, and that's an area I do a lot of internal advocacy on for our staff and a role that I play for many of our country office staff in advocating that they get that professional support to do this very important work. It is really, really important. And you have been an excellent mentor to me. And, you know, after working in this field for 15 or so years, you start to, I guess, develop ways of coping with the things that you do and you see and you read about and you talk about. And then every now and then you'll go and do something and it will hit you unexpectedly. And twice in the past year, I've had those experiences. And both times I've called on you. And I think the last time was I called you from a hotel room in Honiara 
in the Solomon Islands saying, I'm really struggling to cope with what I'm seeing and experiencing here. And just to have that person to be able to talk to and to be able to vent to and to be able to be understood and heard is crucial in being able to process the things that you see. Couldn't agree more, Lee. And likewise, I would turn to people, including yourself as well, because we know we get each other. Uh, the work we do is is very confronting and mostly we do it and we do it well. And that's why we're professional and we've lasted the distance in doing it. But the other flaw that some people may have is that they completely distance themselves from it and they don't get impacted by it. It worries me more when people say, oh, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, than when we have moments where we go, oh, wow, far out. That reminds us, A, we're human, B, we need to take stock, and also we need to look after ourselves, which is something that we're notoriously bad at doing. But um, it's good to know that people when they do have that conscious moment of thinking um, instead of just internalizing and burying it and getting on with it which is what we do a lot of the time but that's what we're professionally trained to do we can't fall apart every time we see something terrible or we'd never get any work done but it's also allowing ourselves that and and sometimes we feel like it's indulgent but it's not it's absolutely necessary it's our body internal warning system saying a close to burnout do something and as you say, it doesn't take much. You just need someone to listen and validate it and share that experience with you unless you are burnt out and then you might need to either take a break or go and talk to someone professionally and um, get things in perspective again or deal with whatever the underlying issue is. But the cumulative effect of our work cannot be understated, which is why regular ongoing supervision, monitoring and support is critical, absolutely critical. Okay, so who is or has been your greatest influence in doing good and why? It's hard to answer that because I've talked about the motivation and the experiences because I think it wasn't one person who influenced me to do what I do. I think if anybody, it would be my parents. If if you go back to what I said at the beginning of the interview, who they were as people and the social justice and looking out for others and always being concerned about the needs of others that is my main I think that's what shaped me as a person and enabled it was my platform for doing good there are significant people as in a few of my earlier supervisors but I was also very strategic I actually chose my supervisors in my social work placements because I knew to get the best shot at lasting the distance in child protection I needed to get really good people who would teach me the right way from the get-go and I was very lucky and I you know can name them all and then I had a really good first boss and I had a really good second boss and they were brilliant supervisors and I also discovered Tony Morrison at the beginning of my career from the NSPCC in the UK who has written the seminal texts on supervision staff care the importance of mentoring what parallel processes do to child protection social workers he taught me everything I knew and he was my mentor right up until he died so I've had key people who have influenced me after I've gone into social work. So what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is 
And, and this is something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. Oh, so many things. I just was sent an article yesterday about the massive uptake of people watching and using pornography, sexually abusive images of children and sexually abusive images of people and sex. And I thought, even though I know this is a big issue, the online, the accessibility for children seeing that stuff and how it shapes them. And I know that, you know, in my earlier work with young people with sexually abusive behaviors and access to the internet was only just becoming a thing and I already saw an emergence of young people engaging in sexually abusive behaviors that would not have had this standard profile for a child in need of protection or a child who was coming from a very abusive family where one of the inevitable outcomes would be that they would potentially become a perpetrator of either physical violence or sexual violence or both. I think that's a massive challenge. Uh, you know, I was thinking and talking about it yesterday. What are we doing? And and that leads to the bigger issue of violence against children per se. That's only one form of it. But the millions and billions of minutes and people accessing those images, I just think, what does that say? What is it going to mean? You know, there's climate change, there's orphanages and people doing that. But I think in five years' time, we will have very much nail that hopefully <laughs> i hope so i have to believe that because you know as i say people genuinely do want to do good and they want to not do harm so when you point out and educate them about that but that's a public thing but this private thing about people sitting behind closed doors kids young people and what and being stimulated to images even if it's consensual sex between adults i don't care about gender i don't care about any of that if it's consensual but they're watching that for kicks but then that doesn't stimulate them enough and then they look for other things and that hyper arousal that becomes with edgier and then it becomes illegal and then it's abusive and then it's the demand for people and children and animals and stuff to stimulate you. I worry about that, probably because that's my area of key interest professionally. I worry about that. That's a very depressing way to almost end. <laughs> I would agree, but I think it, you know, it ties in with this idea of do we inherently all want to be good and do good? And how does that play out in the public sphere with what we do that other people see? And how does that play out privately and, and I think it's a really good point that you raised about that slippery slope of you know perhaps watching uh, consenting adults engage in sexual acts through pornography and then what that leads to and how that the accessibility of pornography impacts the way children's brains understand sex and sexuality and and what that can lead to in the future and i think that is really concerning and and you know the internet while it is wonderful in so many ways the unintended consequences of a tool like the internet i think are, are yet to be seen yes that whole thing about public private it's the same thing about the do-gooders you know my mom always has that saying you know don't do as i do do as i say <laughs> <laughs> and I think 
Yes, exactly. Um, I, you know, I, I do a lot and we, you know, people like you and I, we do a lot, but is it always for good? And I hope it is because that is our intention. But then do our words and our other actions in other aspects of our lives match it? And I constantly, I mean, I'm on a mission at the minute with my carbon emissions, even though I'm about to fly off to Thailand again. So I'm always conflicted all the time. But I'm still running around, you know, making sure there's no plastic and I've got my steel straws and I'm taking them everywhere. I've got my cape cups already in my suitcase. Um, I've changed to the who gives a crap toilet roll, even though my family are protesting and I'm saying bad luck. You know, I'm trying to do all these things <laughs> on so many levels. I'm trying to do good everywhere, but I'm exhausted sometimes by it. Absolutely. And and it brings in this idea of when we know better, we have an obligation to do better, right? Yet there are so many issues in the world and you've just pointed out, you know, climate change, the environment, lots and lots of different things that we can do better at. And we struggle to manage to change practices and habits in our lives that are, you know, potentially damaging to switch them to doing good. And it is exhausting and it is overwhelming. And sometimes people just want to throw their hands up in the air and go, I can't do good in all parts of life. Yes, exactly. It's very tempting and it depends on what day it is. As I said at the beginning, minute by minute, uh, you're up and down like a yo-yo, but mostly we keep going and that's the point. It's the resilience to keep going um, and I think again I got that from my my family and my upbringing because resilience is key in all of this there's the discount hierarchy thing or that cognitive dissonance it's a it's a cop-out and there are days when I think oh my god you know when they've cut funding again well flip me how can I just fix this on my own and then that's when I go into my martyr thing which you know serves me well for you know 15 minutes and then I get over that hopefully or somebody tells me to shut up but it is that thing about okay one child at a time that's been my mantra all my life because I think you know what if I have helped one child today and again that sounds really self-indulgent in a way but okay I can do one thing at a time maybe think about one child not the five million billion that you're trying to end violence for do one at a time if this action now this minute this email that I'm about to send next to make a contribution to something if that does something for that that will lead on to something else over there so it's trying to really break it down and I think the older I get the more pragmatic I'm becoming because you do at the start of your career you're all idealistic you're changing the world for everybody and then in five minutes because you haven't done it you get disillusioned that's what sorts the what's the right you know politically correct analogy to use that sorts out the stairs and the levers um those of us who think okay I tried I had a real hot go I'll move on to something else I'll take a different strategy I'll take a different pathway I have to reinvent my strategy every day pretty much so it's that versatility and resilience and not accepting no and not accepting no money and no resources because if I had accepted that I would not have done any of what I've done um, and I hope by that sheer persistence and so it's resilience and creativity and just being more strategic or being smarter or knowing when to put your head down and shut up also. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, if you could tell the world something 
and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? Think about your impact on others. Perfect. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you a few funner questions (laughs) or more fun questions. These are the standard questions that we will ask all guests. So where is your favourite place on earth? Donegal in Ireland. Why? Because it's where I spent all my childhood holidays. It's where I met my husband and it's stunningly beautiful. What book are you reading right now? Would you believe the uh, history of the Troubles in Northern Ireland? (laughs) As if I didn't live it. Seriously, how sad is my life? (laughs) But, But I've just finished, I've just finished Boy Swallows Universe, Trent Dalton. It is one of the best books I've ever read. And it's an Australian book, so everybody should read that. It's superb. What strange habit do you have? Oh, post-it notes everywhere. Post-it notes. Um, I wake up in the middle of the night and write. I don't know if this is strange. It's just what I do. Uh, I have post-it notes and then half of them say the same thing, but I keep doing it. I think it's an OCD thing. Okay. Tell me about a person who is inspiring you right now and why. On a very personal note, a friend of mine, an ex-work colleague, Kathleen Richardson, her son has been very tragically um, diagnosed with a horrendously aggressive, complicated cancer, which he's been battling for a couple of years and has now just been told after being allowed to be the first person in Australia to go on some trial, very expensive drug, that it's failing and he doesn't have long to live. And having watched Kathleen as a mother and a person go through that, but with such strength and courage and determination to be, you know, there for her son, that's been pretty inspirational for me. Yeah. And I think to bring the personal and the professional together is really important and to, you know, be inspired, not just in the professional sense, but by other people that surround us in our lives and are doing life and good in their own ways is really really important yes absolutely and I think it's good for us to understand that we do have personal lives because there are days I think outside of my work (laughs) to have a life yeah and it all too easily gets mixed together sometimes when you work in this space as well And and it's easy for work to leak over into life and family time and things like that, as you and I both well know. So yeah, being aware of that, I think is really important as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Karen, again, thank you so, so much for being my very first guest. And it's been a pleasure to have you on and to learn new things about you that I didn't already know. And and we've known each other for more than 15 years now I think and I'm always learning from you and I'm always grateful to have you in my life and yes thank you very very much for being my guest on the Do Gooder podcast. Total pleasure you're too kindly but thank you so much and um, let's get back to doing good as only we know how. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem podcast. If you like what you hear don't forget to subscribe and share head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.